That is our main focus. We, we love God's Word. I want you to go to Matthew, uh, not Matthew, I want you to go to, uh, go to John. Let's just skip all that. Go to John chapter, chapter 14. John chapter 14. We had, uh, for the Christmas message, I had uh, wanted to really focus in on what I began last week when we looked at, we went back in the Old Testament and we looked at these five, uh, five feasts, I mean five sacrifices that the Jews, if you start in reading Leviticus chapter 1, and, and remember now, the Old Testament is, is a, is the Bible calls it a shadow. And Jesus is the fulfillment, or we might even the New Testament says Jesus is the substance. So everything in the Old Testament, you should be able to see Jesus in everything that goes on in the Old Testament. Whether it's in His substitutionary death or whether it's in His life of perfection, everything in the Old Testament speaks of Christ coming in the New. One of those that does that is the five sacrifices. I mentioned this last last Sunday morning, the five sacrifices. Now, this isn't the Passover. This is the Day of Atonement. These are daily sacrifices. And the Jews were required to do five. They could choose from five, okay? And uh, see if I can remember them. They were the burnt offering, okay? Now, that was the most significant because that was, that was an atoning sacrifice, okay? It's going to take me a minute, but I want to set the scene. The, the burnt offering was a fully atoning sacrifice because when you said a burnt offering, if you brought a cow, a bull, a goat, a sheep, whatever you brought, you slit its throat at the gate of the, of the t- temple or tabernacle when it first started at the tent. Its blood was let out and then the whole body of the animal was diced up and burned. Hence you get the burnt offering. You couldn't keep any of it. And the priesthood, the Aaron nor his descendants, nobody got anything. It was a complete sacrifice. An animal gave all that it had to take the place of sinners. And the, and the people offering that as a burnt offering believed that. They knew that this animal was dying, so they wouldn't have to. Well, in addition to the burnt offering, and the burnt offering was always required first. The other offerings didn't matter. You could not offer the other offerings until there was a burnt offering on the table, so to speak. So after the burnt offering, there was a, a, a grain offering, flour, meal. You could offer that kind of offering. And each of them stood for different things. But then after the grain offering was the peace offering. Now in the peace offering, and then after the peace offering, there was the sin offering. After the sin offering, there was the trespass offering. And it's exactly what you think. Sin things that you did in, in disobedience you didn't mean to, but you did trespass, you just violated the laws of God, now you're coming to make reconciliation. But the peace offering was different from the rest of them because when you made the sacrifice, they took all the unclean parts of the animal. It tells you it's so much bloodshed. You just, every, this was every day. Every day in the morning. Because one of the roles of the priest... And thinking about Christ fulfilling all these things. One of the role of the priest was they always had to keep the fire kindled on the altar. Okay? Because you're always burning a sacrifice. So people could come in the morning, make sacrifices, and they could come in the evening and make sacrifices. 
And then on the Sabbath, on Saturday, there were two opportunities in the morning and two opportunities in the evening. You doubled the sacrifices on those days. So everybody could come and they could bring one of the five offerings. I talked about peace, and we'll pick back up on that in just a second. But the peace offering was, was the third offering that you could bring. And what they would do is they would take the animal, bring him to the very doors of the tabernacle, because that's where it started, was with a tent. They would cut his throat, there would be a bloodletting, and then the priesthood would have to cut apart the animal. And this one was a little bit different because they would take all the unclean parts of the innards, that's what it says, the innards, and the tail and other parts, and they would burn the parts of the animal that were unclean. That, that would be the burnt offering. Now, because there was already a burnt offering that had already been placed on that altar sometime earlier that day, because you were coming back with a peace offering, when they began to burn the unclean part of that animal, the aroma, the Bible says, that smoke was a fragrant aroma symbolically to the nostrils of God. It became an, an acceptable offering, an aroma. It, sometimes it would call it an acceptable aroma to the Lord because that, that aroma was following a burnt offering and another sacrifice, so it became acceptable in, in the sight of God. But what they were hoping for or what they were thinking when you offered the peace offering was that God was no longer as a holy God and a righteous God, and they had experienced hundreds and thousands of years God's holiness, they realized that they were no longer an enemy of God. So, so this particular offering would be offered, and when they would see that smoke burn, they would realize that God is no longer their enemy. God is their Savior. God is their Redeemer. And they would celebrate the relationship they had with God the Father through, through the peace offering. It was the only one that did this, where they could celebrate well, we would say the New Testament calls it no more enmity between man and God when you come through Christ. So they would worship. Well, when you come to the New Testament, and the New Testament says that Christ is our peace. We know in, in Isaiah, I'm skipping a bunch, what we know as we said last week in Isaiah 9, that this prophecy, 735 years before Christ was born, the prophecy said that Christ, one of the, one of the prophecies was that He would be the Prince of Peace. So everything that, that those offerings stood for, by the way, another part of that offering is unlike the burnt offering and unlike the meal offering, the meat that was edible, you would still roast, but it wouldn't be consumed and both the participant and the priesthood could eat from the meat. They would enjoy the fellowship of a meal symbolically with the Lord, a Lord's meal. So that was one of the promises you could bring through the, because there was peace between God and man so you could partake of the offering that was offered to Him. Just an interesting picture. But when the Bible speaks of Christ being our peace, that's one of the things I think about. That Christ has fulfilled all five of those offerings that they would make every day. He is the burnt offering. He is the meal offering. He's the peace offering. He's the sin offering and He's the trespass offering. Not only were there 1,500 years of Passovers and Days of Atonement, but there were, you know, there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of these daily sacrifices that were no longer needed. And that's why when the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10 
that Christ has offered one. Wasn't repeated day after day. He offered one sacrifice for sin. And after he offered that sacrifice for sin, Hebrews 10 says, then he sat down because his work was through. The writer of Hebrews remembers what Jesus said on the cross. He said, to tell us day, it is finished. He is the sacrifice for sin. Now, just like an Old Testament believer believed in the sacrificial system, believed that this animal was a substitute for, my, for the consequence of my sins, if you're here today, you have to believe that Jesus Christ is the substitute for sin. When we say believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, that's what you're believing in. You're not believing that He's just a historical figure. You're not a, he's not just a prophet that lived in Israel a couple of thousand years ago. You're believing that He's the substitutionary death for sinners. That's what you're believing. And when you're, you're accepting that substitute in your place, that's part of trusting Him as what we call Lord and Savior. And, and that's the whole reason He came. He came... Uh, 1 John 4, 14, I think it's 4.14, somebody read it earlier. Uh, this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and He gave us His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what love is. And folks, that's what Christmas is all about. Well, John happens to talk about this peace as much as any of the gospel writers. So I want you to go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And just to save time, let, let me... If you, if the word, okay, in the Old Testament, y'all know these words, I shared with it last, the Jews would use the Hebrew, they would say shalom, and, and we'll go to Israel in 10, 11 months, and, and you will hear that word a lot, you'll hear the word shalom, it's almost like a greeting, or a, a word of affirmation when you depart, shalom, it means peace, peace be to you, shalom. Well, the New Testament word, or we would say the Greek word, is arene, you don't care about the word, how to pronounce it, but it's irene. And so when, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, okay, uh, called the Septuagint, that means in the first, at the end of the, uh, well, around the beginning of the first century, the Jews began to lose their ability to read Hebrew because they'd been controlled by the, the Romans for so long. So they took the Hebrew Bible and translated it into Greek. So now the Hebrews into Greek, it's called the Septuagint. And the word they used for shalom when they translated into Greek was what? Arene, for peace. Now here's some of the definitions just to save some time. If you look up the word, get your Greek dictionary out, or you look it up online, the Greek scholars, this is what they say. Some of the definitions for being at peace with God is exempt from havoc, exempt from fear and endless burdens of an impending war, one of my favorite definitions is joyful tranquility. Uh, I like that definition. Another scholar says it's quiet rest. It's harmony. It's an ordered and, and a rightly assembled life. And then one says it's a removal of God's holy and eternal displeasure. Let me read that again. It's the removal of God's holy and eternal displeasure and the impending judgment that would fall on you. 
And that's where James says there's no more enmity. One scholar also translated it, soul, a soul-filled prosperity. That, that part of having peace is being, having, a, he called it a prosperous soul. Being at peace with God, there's prosperity in your soul. I like that definition as well. Well, in John chapter, in John chapter twelve, John chapter twelve, and I'm sorry, John chapter fourteen, Jesus is going to define, to some degree, peace. But more than that, he's going to talk about himself being, uh, being the true peace. What we might even call, you know, Isaiah nine, for us to a child is born, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. You know, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And then the last one is he shall be called Prince of Peace. Well, this is, this is that peace. And I'm just going to share with you uh, three or four things about what Jesus says about that peace. But I'm in John 14. Uh, it's interesting if you're studying John, um, if you just, because I'm kind of just pulling this. This isn't a birth narrative, I realize that. But if you're reading John, if you're looking at big picture things, and I like doing that, here's, one way to think about what Jesus is doing in, in John 14. If you studied John, you, you'll remember that in John 13 is where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And He really is almost... He doesn't use the word church. And we know that's used in Matthew. But He he's, he's, um, deals with the relationship that the disciples would have with one another. Um, because after he washes their feet, you know, we had a whole, it's three or four years ago we did this as a theme. We had t-shirts and all of it, the wash basin and the towel and all that. But after he washed their feet, uh, he says to them, he, he doesn't order them to do it, but he says, I've given you an example that you should do to one another as I have done to you. And so when we think about church life, and, and the New Testament, Paul does this, Peter does this, we're called to serve one another right? with our gifts and our abilities. So, so John 13 is kind of the, the church picture that how we relate to one another as believers. Then you get to John 14 and he introduces the work of the Holy Spirit. Because obviously he's told them he's going away. That's in John 14, 1. And so he's going away. So he tells them the work of the Holy Spirit that he's going to come back. I love it what he says in John 14, I think 18. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. And what he was referring to was the coming of the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't leave us alone, though he ascended to the Father. He sends the Spirit. And so John 14 deals with how Christ is still going to be in us. Okay? So John 13, the church body kind of life, one another. John 14 is the work of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit functions in my life and how I can still live like Christ because Christ is in me and I can have the peace that Christ had because Christ is in me. I, I can have that same kind of peace. And then John 15 kind of tells us how you do that every day. How, how is it that I'm going to live like Christ every day? When Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You know, you abide in me and you keep abiding in me and you'll bear fruit and you'll bear more fruit and then you'll bear much more fruit from abiding in me. What he's saying is you'll be more and more like me the more you abide, you abide in me. And of course, one of the attributes of that would be the longer we're in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ, the more peace we'll have. There'll be a settled peace. Or we might even call a, a soul-filled prosperity in our own hearts. No fear, no fear of death, no fear of judgment. We'll be at peace. If we have Christ in us. Well, Christ is, 
kind of defining himself as peace. So I'm going to pick up in John uh, 14, but let me pick up uh, verse 20. Because 14, 20 kind of makes a transition between the work of the Spirit as described in John 14. And remember, he talks about the Spirit again a little bit in 15, but a lot in chapter 16. Okay, Still talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's, and it's important because that's... Hey, okay, here it is. Um, Galatians 5.22 said, says, For the fruit of the Spirit is... One fruit, many flavors, and it says, Love... Joy. What's the next one? Peace. So all of us that are saved and have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, one of the fruits of, or one of the flavors of the fruit of the Spirit would be peace, love, joy, peace. There's nine of them. Patience, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. That's not nine, but you'll, you'll forgive me. But all of those, that one fruit, many flavors, you possess because Christ is in you by way of the Holy Spirit. So, verse 20 says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, more than likely, I think he's referring to the day of Pentecost because... uh, that's when the Spirit fell on these apostles. And, and it seems as if that's when they were filled with the power of Christ because up until then they were, had been hiding in an upper room in Jerusalem for, for ten days after He ascended. So, um, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them... He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Always a connection between being obedient to God's Word and having the presence of God. That, that never changes. Uh, so the one thing that you and I have that's, that we can see is God's Word. And if we want to experience God's peace, love, joy, peace, peace, if we want to experience the fruit of the Spirit, then we're going to have to be in God's Word and God's Word be in us. Uh, and if you love Him, He tells you that. If you love Him, you're going to obey His commands. Uh, he keeps them, He says. Judas, but not Judas is a carrot because he's already been sent away to do his deeds. Judas, but not as a carrot, said to Jesus, Lord... How is it, this is still a question people ask, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So what's one telltale sign between those that, that Christ has manifested himself to and those he has not manifested himself to? Jesus says it's those who keep His Word. If anyone loves Me, he will keep My Word. And My Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. We will 
tabernacle. And this is just another affirmation that the Father and the Son, through the work of the Spirit, will be abiding in the life and the heart, the mind of every saint. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Look how many times he mentions speaking and word and saying. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, that's a specific promise to the apostles. One reason we believe and we call it an apostolic church, we we think that what our church does ought to be much like the book of Acts because because the, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. So, so we, if our church is going to be the church that's serving Christ and being obedient to Christ, then we're going to be much like the apostolic church. And the reason we want it to be that way is it's to those guys that Jesus promised to, to teach all things. And He says, and bring, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And that's divine inspiration if you want to say that. That's why we believe in the, the authority of the apostles or those that were close to the apostles who wrote Scripture and knew it was inspired. And you know, the apostle Paul wrote many letters that we don't have. And he knew he was writing letters to people. But when he wrote Scripture, he knew he was writing Scripture. You know that from reading the end of the book of Colossians. Uh, that he, there, he knew when he was writing Scripture or when he was just writing a correspondence. So, so God would bring to their remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, interesting enough... Um, do you see the importance of what we say apostolic authority in the church? That, um, that a church ought to model its theology and church life after what they remembered that Jesus wanted to remember to write down? And why Paul makes a big deal of that when he writes about the authority of the written word through the apostles? Because it's what Christ promised that they would write. There's no more scriptures being revealed. There's nothing being added to the Bible. But interesting enough, when you read John's Gospel, um, of course, not everybody believes this, but, well, John was the last, time-wise, it's not in the Bible, obviously it's the fourth Gospel, but in his history, it was the last book written of the Gospels. It was a, it was a latter book. What I'm saying is, it wasn't written in the 70s. It wasn't written in the 60s. It seems as if God called... John later in life to write his books. And so he wrote John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then the book of Revelation he wrote when he was in his 90s. At least in his 80s. So there's a good chance that when God led, which is interesting, but when God led, when, God, when Christ brought to remembrance to John what to write down, John might have been 70 years old. 80 years old when he wrote this. So God did a marvelous work. So John pins it back down. 
And that's why when you read John's Gospel, it's totally different from the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synonymous. Synoptic Gospels. But John is, is, has a whole different world he deals with. Let's move on. Then he says in verse 27, so it's about God's Word. Well, verse 26 says, But the Helper, the Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, which is... And he says this later in John 16, it's another me. He calls the Jesus calls the Spirit another me. So he says, but the, the helper, that's you hear the word a lot in theology, it's the word paraclete. It's the word para called kaleo and para. Just it's somebody called alongside. Is if you translated the word paraclete, that's the word. But the paraclete, which, which means one called alongside the help, could be a, a, law, a lawyer. Um, very often the legal system used the word paraclete. Could be a nurse, an aide, a nurse's aide to help. So it's somebody that's called alongside the help. That's what the Spirit's called. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things, and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Then he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I- I'm going away. And I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. Now look what he says here. For the ruler of this world is coming. For the ruler of this world is coming. Now, if you'll think, now you know who you know the personage of the ruler of the world is who you can say it out loud Satan okay And do you remember what Jesus said to Judas the betrayer why is Satan putting your heart to do this you know, do it quickly So I, I think this is a reference to Jesus knows that while he's teaching that the deed's been done he's been sold as if he was a, a slave and, and now they're making plans to come arrest him. You know, so he knows. I think that's kind of what he's talking about. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. But he says he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And then he says, rise up, let us go. Let me just mention three or four things quickly, and I will be quick. Number one, Jesus promises us a peace that's personal. Now, see, you could say like peace might be a life without anxiety. But that's not the peace that Jesus is talking about. Uh, you know, there's worldly peace that, uh, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I take medicines and it brings me a, a kind of peace. But that's not the peace we're talking about, is it? Or, uh, or I might... Uh, uh, somebody gave me a Christmas gift that I really liked and it gave me peace in my heart. Or what? So there's all kind of worldly things we could... But that's not what Jesus is talking about. It's talk, he's talking about a peace that He owns. 
It's a personal peace that, that's His. And, and what He's telling us here is that those of us that are saved should demonstrate the kind of peace that Christ demonstrated when He was on this earth. So it's a personal peace that He alone owns. Uh, it's like when He... Same thing He said in the same kind of context when He said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. It's His church. He will build it. This is His peace. And He's the one that gives it. And so, obviously, for all of us that are saved and born again, we should have what, well, what um, Paul says in Philippians 4. Some people love Philippians because of what it says here uh, about the peace of God that passes. It says it really the Greek word is it surpasses your mind is how it reads. The peace of God surpasses your mind. It, it's way beyond your own ability to have peace. It's, it passes your mind, Philippians 4-7. So it's His kind of peace. So this, He says it's personal, quickly. And then He tells us that this peace has a purpose. I want you to flip back over. I'm still in chapter 14. But it's what He says in verse 18. So He says my peace is personal. Okay, This, this peace that we have is Christ's peace. That's why it's one of the fruits of the Spirit, a part of the fruit of the Spirit. But it's, it has a purpose, and I, I was trying to summarize what that purpose would be, and so I went to verse 18, and this is kind of the best way that, uh, that I can describe it, is when Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And of course, I, I mean, I've already talked about that, but it's the indwelling presence of Christ, it's um, this is so Christ's plan as the God, as the Son of God who came into the world to give us a peace, fulfilling all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, give us a peace that's beyond our own ability to have. It's His peace, and He transfers it to us in salvation, and He's able to say, I'm going away, but I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. And so. Um, Paul said it like this, Christ in me, the hope of glory. So, so it's Christ. It's, this, it's the purpose of His peace is, that, is the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ being, being in us. Um, so quickly, it's personal. It's a personal peace. It's purposeful peace. It's a powerful peace. I'll skip that one. But I want you to notice it's, it's, a, it's a permanent peace. Look at verse... Uh, Look at verse 20. Uh, whatever, whatever peace on earth is supposed to mean, whatever being the Prince of Peace is supposed to mean, there's one group of people in the world that know what real peace is at Christmas. It's me and it's you. It's those of us that know Christ. He says, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Folks, that, that's, that's permanent. That's a permanent promise that His Spirit's always going to be in you. And if His Spirit's always in you, you're always going to be in Him, and you're always going to be in the Father. So the peace that we have, to me, is an affirmation of our eternal security. 
I was thinking about this and I was trying to think of something in the Bible that might give us a, a living illustration of what it means to experience peace. I came up with two and I'll close with this. One would be the uh, uh, when, when Jesus teaches on sheep and the shepherd in John 10. And I don't, I don't know a whole lot about sheep. I mean, I've, I've, I've sheared sheep a few times when I was a boy. I'm not going to act like I'm a big farm boy because I'm not. But going to Israel, you'll see... Um, you'll see sheep, you'll see them a lot. And, uh, but anyway, when Jesus said in John 10, now think about the peace, we're His sheep. Okay, Jesus says, my sheep, think of all the things we're worried about in this world, all the things you can go on. We major on the minor, but he, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And what do they do? They just follow Him. That's the peace of God. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. His rod, you know, think about the psalmist. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I'm not worried about enemies. I'm not worried about going hungry. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. Folks, we have the peace of God because we follow and obey the Prince of Peace. One other illustration I thought was interesting, and this is kind of a preacher thing, but in Mark's Gospel, Mark talks about sowing the seed. Talking about us, we sow the seed of the Gospel. And, uh, but this is the sovereignty of God. Now, I want you to think about this. Because my home church was a little different. They would tell me it was my fault people didn't get saved. They put guilt trip on me as if I was the one going to save them. So, so Mark says the sower sows the seed. Farmer sows the seed. Then you know what he does after he works and sows the seed? Mark says he goes home and he goes to bed and he sleeps. Because you know who's going to, you know how that seed is going to die? and then produce life, is it going to be anything the person can do that does that? No. It's a God thing. So those of us that are believers, the peace of God, yes, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me, but yet, also another thing about having the peace of God is we're here, we nominate people to heaven. We sow the seed of the gospel in word and deed, but God brings the harvest. It, he's the one that does the saving. He's the Savior. So my job is to share the truth. It's His job to take that truth and save sinners. To me, I believe that because I have the peace of God in me. I know that it's His job, not mine. Let's stand together. This peace that, that passes all understanding. Let me tell you about Christmas. Uh, of course, now Wednesday, I, I have to do my announcements. Wednesday night we're doing a, a bonfire, carol singing, and hayride. You'll get a note from the church. Pay attention to it. That's Wednesday night. Start about 5.30. Wednesday night. Sing, testimonies, stuff, you know, hayride, all that. Okay. Christmas Day is 10.30 only, right? Then no church the next Wednesday and then 10.30 on New Year's Day. And there's going to be a lunch, but we'll talk about that later. Let's pray. Father, thank You for, for that peace that does pass all understanding. 
Father, thank you that uh, Christ came and wore the crown that that I deserve, bore the the punishment, the death that I deserved. We call Him Jesus because He's the Savior of His people. He's Christ the Lord. Father, thank You for the victory that we have in Christ. Now as we leave this place, I pray the reality of God's redemptive act in Christ would overwhelm us and Father, we would experience the amazing peace that only we have because we know the Prince of Peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. See you. See you Wednesday night.